All right. The sweet tones of the Jimi Hendrix guitar can only mean one thing. We are back for another episode of the CXM Experience, uh, which we're actually going to start calling the Unified CXM Experience. I'm Brad Kahn, CXO at Sprinkler, Chief Experience Officer at Sprinkler. And today I am actually really looking forward to today's session. I've had a couple of really great prep conversations with our guest today. And our guest today is Nick Nunes. He's the Social Media Director at BMO. Now, just for everybody who may or not know what BMO is, BMO stands for Bank of Montreal. Americans often will say BMO. No, 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 no. It's it's BMO. And that's how all Canadians know the Bank of Montreal. Bank of Montreal. I was a customer for many, many, many years. I was a Bank of Montreal customer probably from the time I was 12 until I left the country in 2006. So long time. And uh, great, 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 great bank, great people. I do actually miss it. I think um, BMO is one of the, one of the great uh, brands and banks and services out there. So Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Grad. It's great to be here. I got to get something off my chest. So, <laughs> and then just good news, this has got nothing to do with the banking industry. So I'm not slamming any of your peers. I'm not slamming anybody that you may know. This is a appliance industry beef. And to be fair, appliance industry always strikes me as being one of the laggards in customer experience. And this is no exception. So um, here's a first world problem. So I'm going to admit to a little bit of privilege here. And it's just, I'm just going to throw that out there, but I'm not unique in this, but I needed to get a garage fridge. Okay. So I'm already sort of like, everyone's like sort of rolling their eyes right now saying, oh, you know, Grad's going to tell us a sad story about his second refrigerator uh, that he puts like a uh, pop and water in. But it's, it was still like, it's important because, you know, in Florida it's hot and you need cold drinks. And I didn't have room in my main refrigerator for whatever reason. And so I needed to get a second refrigerator. And I went to Best Buy and I bought a brand new Whirlpool refrigerator. Uh, it's got two doors and it's a vertical. So it's like a vertical freezer on the left and then a refrigerator on the right. And it was quite large and it really fit my needs perfectly. I had it delivered by Best Buy. They put it in place. Uh, I had new plugs built for it, went right in spot and everything was going swimmingly. Best Buy's delivery was great. The people were very friendly. It went in smoothly. It was clean. It was, it was all I was like this is fantastic and it is exactly the amount of effort I wanted to put into a second refrigerator in the garage since then it has been a lot more effort and to the point where I actually thought to myself why am I spending so much time on a secondary refrigerator in the garage like this is almost not worth it Um, anyway it broke so about uh, maybe two or three weeks into being my refrigerator, uh, it stopped working. I had a service person come out. Uh, the service person said the compressor is broken, which is that's kind of like is the refrigerator. Right. And the condenser and compressor were both gone. He sort of quietly said to me, you might want to get a new fridge because it's a little unusual to have both these main components blow within a few weeks of, of getting it. And what? Has con- uh, it's been most amazing, insane experience since then uh, of trying to get a new fridge has been nearly impossible. Navigating Best Buy versus Whirlpool and the conflicting sort of warranties, services and not services. But the weirdest thing and the thing that I, I'm just going to kind of coach everyone up on is that the whole thing kind of got started. I'm not going to go through every body blow on this thing, but the thing that's sort of funny is uh, when it first happened, I was like, ah, darn. 
And so I got all the information off the inside of the fridge and went online and found when I, I registered online, I realized I had to actually call them. So first sort of problem, I had to make a phone call, but it's okay. So I'll make a phone call. And so I call them and I, I'm greeted by their customer service IVR. And I can't mimic it perfectly, but imagine it's almost like, imagine uh, Jiminy Cricket. So if you know Jiminy Cricket from okay, uh, Pinocchio, right? So imagine Jiminy Cricket coming on saying, hey, welcome to the Whirlpool Experience. It's going to be a really great experience. And we're here to service you with 100 years of amazing customer service. And here you go. And I thought to myself as they were taking this to me, I was like, I literally out loud said, uh-oh. <laughs> It was just, it just, it was, I was, I could feel them setting me up. Like, it was just like, I had this like tightening inside. (laughs) This is going to be a horror show. And it was, I was then dropped into an IVR nightmare just to, just for as an example, they are great. So welcome aboard. Give us your phone number. I thought, give me their phone number. Like I've never called them before. All right. So I put my phone number in and then we don't have that phone number in our system. Enter it again. Oh, no. And so I entered the phone number again. We still don't have that number. Enter it again. They put uh, some kind of identity block before you can actually talk to them. There's no way to like, how do you put And like, uh, I'm like I said, I'm not going to go through every single step, but I literally had to hire somebody and I've spent several hundred dollars on that person person alone to actually call, sit on waiting hours, like hours of waiting on phone calls and Best Buys and Whirlpools. Anyway, in the end of the day, the same service person who said it was broken came back and fixed it. I never did get a new refrigerator. He was like super salty because it got canceled and there was confusion. And so he was like sort of kind of lipping me off while he's fixing the fridge. And it was like, the whole thing has just been bananas. And I would say that the where the breakdown occurs, and this is what we'll kind of talk about today, Nick, is the breakdown that occurred was threefold. One is there's some crazy disconnect inside Whirlpool between the people writing the aspirational, you know, hey, welcome to the Whirlpool experience kind of stuff, and the people who are actually delivering the service. So there's, that's kind of something wrong there. Number two, the Best Buy versus Whirlpool interaction is crazy because Whirlpool won't let Best Buy service the machine they just sold to me like three weeks before that was broken and that's that's had a hugely negative impact on my best buy perception because i kind of thought of best buy and i have a service plan with them and i I'm, I'm a very loyal best buy customer and they install tons of stuff in my house and now i'm like well maybe that best buy service plan is kind of a waste of time so that's an issue and then the third one is the disconnect between the service people who work for a company called flamingo service and then whirlpool because they're contracting out the services. And so these, all these disconnected sort of parts are, can't really work together well. And so as a customer, I'm bearing the brunt essentially of their org structure. So, you know, I will say, I actually, I'm sorry, Nick, I, I really, I really just, I feel so much better <laughs> just getting that off my chest. Uh, and I really wanted to do the welcome to the Whirlpool experience. <laughs> like, just like, you, actually, everybody, you've got to call them. Like it is the craziest experience. Just call them and see how insane it is. Um, anyway, uh, I feel much better now. So anyway, Nick, like, 
like, welcome aboard. And uh, what I want to do is like, let's like, talk about this. Like, you know, you you must see, and I'm, I'm not, I don't want to talk about BMO specifically because I don't want to uh, get into positives or negatives uh, at, at your place of employment. But let's just talk about the industry in general. And I think it would be interesting to talk about financial services because there are a lot of departments and connections and stuff. And how are you seeing these connections work or not work? And talk to me a little bit about where you see things going right now in the industry and, and how do you how do you think we can fix this kind of stuff? So first off, that was a fantastic example, Grad. I'm, I'm sorry you went through that experience. It sounds it sounds horrible, but it also sounds like such a tremendous opportunity if Whirlpool or Best Buy or any of their employees are listening to this piece because you you basically told them where their uh, service chain breaks. Right? Like you, you, you broke it for them in a little bit uh, just by having a defaulty, uh, defaulted fridge. Right. But at one point I was at the peak of my frustration as I was talking to the person who would at this point had waited hours online on, on, on the phone to get service. I said, do they understand like of all the people on the planet to, to, to deliver this horrible experience to like I maybe I'm the best thing that could happen because you're right. You know, maybe this will help. Um, but I don't know. I don't think I was the best person to do it to. But anyway, <laughs> I, I, I think uh, the, the, the whole notion of identifying influencers grad can be done in a number of different ways. And I think when you look at CXM as a whole and you start to think about the data that an organization should have on you, you would think they put in not only just your purchasing history and your record with them over time, but also um, some publicly available data. And I think many organizations will get there. We're on the path in many ways from a financial services industry to get there as well. Obviously, there are some some data privacy implications that we face that uh, that others in other industries probably wouldn't. But uh, that's where the organization and that's where the, the world are kind of moving to and they need to, right, to prevent customer experiences like you have. And I think the other piece, just to go back to your initial question is, I think that um, as service op- operations get more digitized, meaning, I mean, you would be shocked how many organizations don't even respond to uh, customer service complaints through social networks at this point. They just tell you, you have to call. Um, it's 2021 and, and you're still experiencing that, right? I think I think you're going to see um, a lot of digitization and a lot of better care go through those modern channels that you often talk about. But I think you're also going to see um, some notable cultural shifts from a what is marketing? What is care? Right now, a lot of folks see it as care should take care of care. And and, and I get that. I understand that. Um, I think in 10 years, we might be having a little bit of a different conversation about what the care organization in your organization or what the care structure, I should say, in your organization looks like, because care is going to be such an extension of your brand, even more so than it is today. And I think that's going to open up some interesting opportunities as you think about who owns experience. Does that mean you and you own not only what the message from your organization is going out the door, but also um, the message that customers receive when they contact you and therefore you own care and marketing? Yeah, that's interesting. I want to talk a little bit about why people are still ignoring and it's, I'd say all modern channels too. It's, there clearly is stuff coming in over what we consider social platforms. A lot of people have a very strong preference to communicate with brands with Messenger or other messaging platforms, but there's also a ton of content on the review sites, um, in Reddit and all the forums that are out there. Reddit's 
very rich for some of our customers and, uh, and also blogs. There's like half a billion of those. I had a really, really amazing conversation with our Instacart customer. Instacart's one of our uh, bigger customers. And, uh, there's a just really innovative leader there. And I'm not going to kind of mention his name and stuff like that. Cause I, I, I didn't ask him to <laughs> if you got to talk, talk about him, but, but he's just, he's a super innovative leader. And what's interesting is that, you know, Instacart's a very self-contained app. Right. And there's a lot of uh, help and help functions within the app itself. Despite that, there are hundreds of thousands of care opportunities that they take care of on the social platforms. And they but what I've noticed is that a lot of companies, it's not that they're deciding not to do it. It's almost like they've decided not to even look to see if they should do it. It's like they're almost trying to pretend it's not there. And in by pretending it's not there, they don't have to worry about it. So they're essentially letting the phone ring without picking it up. Do you see that? And what is that? Like, why do people do that? I, I think the, the interesting piece, and I don't think it's the case with Instacart, but I do think it's the case, particularly in uh, smaller countries and specific industries is when you start to look at uh, the technology investment you'd need to make to have a privacy safe experience, particularly if we were to think about this as a workflow, right? So customer reaches out, they have something that requires you to take credit card data, say they want to purchase something, say they want to look up maybe even just your billing information, right? Um, to what extent are you comfortable as a business exposing that data in the Facebook or Instagram or other social platform ecosystem where it's not secure from end to end and you are now taking that data, particularly credit card data and otherwise. I think that exposure point is something that many brands wouldn't necessarily be as comfortable with. So now you've got to look at authentication technology that has a cost. You've got to think about the digital experience and how you bridge off that platform, that type of thing. I think the other unfortunate reality is Social care volume, in some cases, is just not there at scale just yet, but it's rising. And the interesting piece for this, and, and not to give you too much insight into, into specific brands, but I worked for one of the largest, if not, I, I believe it's actually the largest uh, telecommunications company in Canada, which to our American friends would, would still feel pretty small, uh, but uh, led the social there before joining the banking industry. And uh, our volume from a social care perspective, now granted this is six years ago, was still significantly higher than we face from a service perspective on social from a banking industry. So to give you some sense, like the the incoming requests for social and banking, and this is true amongst all of my peers, I've chatted with them regularly, folks that sit in, in places like I do in these organizations are still very small. They're growing rapidly every year, but they're still very small relative to like traditional phone data. So part of the challenge is how do you shift the volume in the first place, let alone addressing the volume? Gotcha. So you can kind of afford to ignore it at this point is that sort of what you're saying because the volumes are still low, low enough that it's not impacting. I don't think you can afford to ignore any volume really has long-term implications. I think that the notion is that is one of the challenges with making a business case for enterprise-grade tech when you don't have enterprise-grade tech volume but you know you will in the future. Well, if I may uh, also go to your first point, and I, I'm going to do a quick sprinkler ad here because... And I don't do this very often on the Unified CXM experience, but uh, I was um, I was uh, 
kind of listening to you talk about the challenge of someone wanting to have an account number and while they're interacting on say Twitter, you know, you can always go to DM, but still maybe that's not secure. I, I don't, I'm not going to say whether it is or isn't, but certainly DMs are, are, are reasonably private. Uh, but um, there is a technology that we developed at Sprinkler that not everybody knows about. And I think I'm just kind of kicking myself. I feel like I've done a terrible job of helping everyone understand this. Um, but we have one of our telco customers in the Mideast uh, was you know, almost all social care. They had like thousands and tens of thousands of these. And this was becoming a bit of an issue. And so we built a piece of technology that basically allows you to take a conversation that's becoming confidential, move it into chat in Sprinkler. And what it does is it actually moves the entire conversation that had started on the social platform and moves it into the chat so you don't lose any um, any of the fidelity of the conversation. And then the customer is also got, you know, the conversation essentially seamlessly continues into private and then it's encrypted at both ends. So it's very, very high level encryption. And that's been incredibly successful. And we have rolled that out in a lot of places. Uh, and so it's a little bit one of those things where people are like, well, I mean, I can't do take phone numbers or account numbers on, on a public forum and i'm like yeah i totally agree with you there um but why let that stop you maybe like it's funny how people don't say double click on that and say is there a technology inside sprinkler which almost you know all these folks are using anyway uh that allows me to do it so that's my quick ad i think part of the problem with it is that i'm i'm not articulating it very well i gotta come up with a i gotta sit down i think and actually work on this a little bit i gotta come up with some snappy name right like the you know the confabulator but not that, not, not the confabulator, <laughs> the, the privacy, the privacy or I don't know, like they kind of come with something that kind of gets people to understand what we're doing because it's, it is pretty cool, but, um, but I hear you. So let's talk a little bit about where, uh, where you were going a few minutes ago. So you were talking about how do you rethink the customer service function? And so let me sort of sort of put a couple of grenades on the table, if you don't mind, just to kind of get that one going. I'll pull the pins as well. Uh, tink, tink. Uh, so one thing is customer service is always a separate function from marketing. But, you know, if someone has a bad experience, like the experience I just had with Whirlpool and Best Buy have had a profound effect on my desire to ever buy another Whirlpool appliance and a profound effect on my desire to buy anything from Best Buy. Right. And there's some poor marketer who's pounding me with messages and spend and all that stuff to try to get me to buy more of both of those brands. And meanwhile, the experience so overwhelmed me that you couldn't you you probably couldn't give me a Whirlpool fridge for free at this point and have me be excited about it because I'm like, I don't know if I want all the headaches. And so that that disconnect between customer service and marketing, I think, is pretty pretty fundamental. And I don't know why it's happened. The second thing is, who are we putting in customer service? And we tend to underpay and create less security and less fewer rewards for the people who are in the customer facing functions. And as a result, we're taking the most important person really in the organization and rewarding them the least uh, with expectedly negative outcomes. And so let's talk a little bit about this and like, give me like, what do you think your five year vision on this would be? And where do you think we're going? There is this expression 
of care is the new marketing. Uh, so just let's talk about that for a minute. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah. I- interesting things to, to unpack, Brad. I think the first thing I would say is organizations have such a tremendous opportunity to look at care, not just as a cost center. And I think, unfortunately, as I think about the conversations that I have with a number of folks, both inside and outside banking and telecommunications industries, a lot of large scale enterprise folks still talk in terms of costs when they think about care and costs, unfortunately, is is one of those levers that um, it becomes a little bit tougher to prove your business case for having a highly paid, very, very, very skilled workforce of the best of the best from a care perspective. And I think what you're going to probably see is a mind shift in that area. And it's probably going to move into, well, how do I turn my care organization to something that can um, begin to generate revenue for me as well? And therefore, that could change a whole bunch of the things that you think of as downstream impacts, namely uh, care rep compensation, for example, right? If you are going down the path of somebody uh, turning a, not only saving a customer who might be disgruntled, but then selling them as well, that alone, they deserve quite a bit of compensation to do that. And I think there's such a tremendous opportunity as you think about things like, you know, integrating the data you have on the customer, suggesting next best product through AI based on the data that you have on a customer and really starting to change the thought process on making a customer satisfied and then thinking about what's next for that customer once they are all in one singular place, whether that is one singular human that services them through phone or modern channels or whatever the case is, or whether there's that seamless handoff, all that to say, um, I think five years from now, we wouldn't be experiencing that sort of a challenge as much as we will today, because I think the, the industry is moving there. Who do you think, like, let's go outside financial services for a second. Because yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to sort of think about who's doing this really well. I, I love where you're going with it. I think I totally agree with you. But do you, who who's done this? Who's who's leading the way, or who's got who's sort of kind of guiding the pathway? And I will say one thing that I um, I read a great word for this the other day. I, I've been calling it Uberization, and it's not a very good word. Someone else had a much better word for this. But basically, what's happening right now is that anytime something happens in one industry, the customer expectation changes for all industries, right? So once Uber was able to show you where your product was at every single stage of delivery, right up until we'll pull in front of your house, uh, you're like, well, why can't everyone show me where my stuff is at every single stage of the delivery right up until one pulls in front of my house? I'd say Uber's had a huge impact on delivery, delivery services, Domino's, they Domino's Pizza does it now. Uh, I saw a, a truck the other day, Domino's Pizza truck, carrying, I think, frozen stuff inside. It was like a fridge, fridge truck. And on the side of the truck, they had that sort of progress bar that Domino's has when you're ordering a pizza. And it showed where what the truck represented in terms of the progress bar, which was like, shipping to warehouse or something like that. It was, it was hilarious. But so that's, that sort of happens. And I think there's other things that when somebody starts to do customer service, the way you're talking about it right now, I think the entire world is going to suddenly change. But 
you know, I have Zappos as sort of the one example. The weird thing about Zappos is they literally built a company based on customer service, right? They did exactly what you're talking about in terms of paying, rewarding, you know, creating a great company culture. You know, they, they, they basically, the CEO is on that floor all the time. Like they viewed that as their core competitive advantage. It's been very, it's still, everyone talks about it, right? And then yet the Zappos story is old. Like they wrote a book about it, I think 10 years ago. Like this, it's an old story and it's for some reason not had the influence that Uber's had in other areas. And I'm puzzled by that. So let's, let's jam on that for a sec. Yeah. So, so two interesting industries that I'll, that I'll kind of pull up here. One is quick serve restaurants. So I, I've recently, I won't name the brand, but I recently had an awful, and I mean awful experience at a restaurant. And it takes a lot for me to complain, but I did. I did it. I took Harvey? the plunge. Is it Harvey's? No, it, Harvey's? it wasn't Harvey's, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so I complained. And the interesting piece of that is uh, I was I was fully expecting to not get a great response. I complained on a modern channel. I complained on social, but I didn't. I didn't do it publicly. I I went through a DM. And uh, I got a great response, a very empathetic response. And I also got um, a voucher to come in to not only replace my meal with a refund, which was interesting because usually they just say, oh, come back in and we'll give you the same thing again, right, for free. So they were going to give me a refund. And they also gave me a meal free, which was great. And then when I went into the experience, and here's where it's next level for me. When I went in, they knew at the restaurant They knew at the restaurant that I had a bad experience and that I had from a experience perspective, a poor one. And I, I've been rocking my brain grad, but the only thing I can think of is the care team had a way of taking that negative complaint, rooting it to the restaurant manager and having my name on file. Now I, I made a reservation digitally so maybe in the back end systems they're connected to the extent, but I was That's blown fantastic. Away. absolutely blown away, right? And then the next piece I would say is, and a lot less impressive, but a, a very iconic Canadian brand who I will name, Canadian Tire. So I actually walked out. Oh, of course. Oh my God, Canadian Tire. I miss Canadian Tire. There's no Canadian Tire down here. There's nothing like it. Canadian Tire is so unique. It is so unique. I don't. They they've tried and failed over and over again in the U.S. But it is. Oh my God! It's such a fantastic store. <laughs> okay, Canadian Tire. I'm all in. Okay. I, I won't take us off track. Other than to say, there's also one up here in in Canada called Princess Auto, which is which is a. It's like a more evolved, very different concept on Canadian Tire. But I digress. To go back to Canadian Tire. Um, I, I went in there and this is probably a year ago now I went in there and, uh, the cashier actually gave me a product that, um, I didn't buy. So there must've been something there on the, on the cash register. And for some reason I walked out with something I didn't buy. So when I went back to the store, I, uh, it was out of stock, right? So I sent a note because I had a very dissatisfying experience within that, uh, that actual in-person interaction and they shipped me too. So that was kind of cool. Nick, I am 
I am loving this conversation. Uh, maybe having a bit too much fun, actually, because we're going a little long. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna end today now, and we'll take a little break, and we'll pick this up tomorrow, uh, and we'll be uh, we'll be back and continuing the Unified CXM experience. So for the Unified CXM experience, I'm with Nick Nunes, the social media director at BMO, and I am Grad Con, CXO or Chief Experience Officer at Sprinkler, and I'll see you tomorrow.